Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and today the COO of the Polk Institute joins me to share the Institute's Master Practitioner Training Accelerator, excuse me, losing my voice, and capital funding program with the focus of graduating fundable CEOs. Now, Tim Dura received two Bachelor of Science degrees from North Dakota. He has a fascinating story. Two Bachelor of Science degrees from North Dakota State University. The first was in 1974 and the second in 1982. He has served as a command fighter pilot in the United States Air Force and after 22 years of service retired due to medical issues. But in the meantime, he started and operated three diverse businesses in entertainment, food service, and aviation. He then became a 20, began a 20-year teaching career and became, became involved in teaching entrepreneurship. You wouldn't think that entrepreneurship would be something that can be taught. It most definitely can be taught. So his program was extremely successful, spending five, sending five businesses to the FTE National Business Plan Competition in New York City. In the six years, his NFTE kids were eligible. So, Tim, welcome. We had a terrific conversation, a pre-interview not too long ago, and I really wish that I had recorded it because you were sharing so much of your genuinely interesting background. So, welcome to your partner in Success Radio. Well, thank you very much, and good morning. Uh, I'm kind of... uh, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. I definitely have a diverse background. <laughs> That's true. You do. And before I get too 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 deep into this, I want you to tell me a bit more about your your military service. And thank you for your service, by the way. I have great respect for our military and for our police. And you know, thank you for everything you have done. Oh, well, I appreciate that. Uh, I uh, am always glad to hear when people actually acknowledge the sacrifice that many of our men and women make by becoming a part of the military and serving their country. Uh, A little bit about my military background. I was actually in the last pool of people that were eligible for the draft, okay, back in 1970, and uh, I received a draft number of 43. At the time, of course, Vietnam War was going on and all those kinds of things, but the draft and the fact that I was number 43 really didn't make much of a difference because I already knew that I was going to get in the pipeline, become a United States Air Force officer, and at that point, a hopeful candidate uh, become a pilot. So when I went through North Dakota State the first time, uh, I was commissioned as second lieutenant in the United States Air Force upon graduation in 1974. And at that point, uh, I 
when uh, the Vietnam War had wound down, their demand for pilots had decreased a lot, and they were uh, having a big reduction in force. So there's a lot of people in the Air Force, pilots, and you know other AFSCs or codes, people that did other things, were being uh, basically discharged from the military. And they had a bunch of us coming in. They didn't know what to do with us. So I was in what they called the hardship and then I ended up going to Keesler Air Force Base to learn how to become an executive support officer. And what I, that's basically an administration job. And they were going to then send me to my pilot training base. And I would sit there by pilot training base doing admin things until uh, a slot became available for me uh, to start pilot training. And the funny part about that particular uh, bit of information is that when I'm from North Dakota, okay, I didn't have any clue about, I knew what a hurricane was, but never been in one. Uh, just, you know, you read about them, see about them on the news sort of thing. So I'm heading south towards Keesler Air Force Base, Mississippi, and I'm on this interstate heading through Jackson, Mississippi at that point, going south. And the northbound lane was just jam-packed solid with cars, and I'm kind of wondering what's going on. I hadn't had the radio on. <clears throat> and in the southbound lane where I was, the only cars were me and you know, the highway patrol and uh, emergency service vehicles and that kind of stuff. So I turned on the radio, and then I found out that there was a hurricane that was approaching Biloxi, Mississippi. So I pulled over in a at a little town called Soso, Mississippi, and called to uh, Kiesler and asked them, what do I do? I had no idea. And they said, whatever, <laughs> they said, stay away, stay away. Keep calling in every morning. We'll let you know when it's safe to come down. So I spent five days then with my old ROTC instructor from North Dakota State who had been ripped in this reduction of force and ended up in uh, in Soso on a farm, uh, basically a chicken ranch. That's what he called it. And so I spent five days with him riding out the hurricane, which was you know really interesting, kind of how that worked. And then when I got down to Keesler, uh, it was the place was a mess. The whole Biloxi Gulf Coast area. So we spent actually about I want to say, I think it was about a week, not quite a week, force took airmen and officers and assisted the local area in cleaning up, basically, from the hurricane. And so there, myself and another second lieutenant who had just shown up to Keesler and 12 airmen basics who had just showed up to Keith were all brand new to the Air Force. They threw us in this big uh, deuce and a half truck. And we went down along the beach and the airmen were out cleaning up and we were supposed to be supervising all of this. And one interest, this I'll never forget in my entire life, they had uh, security policemen that were basically patrolling along the beach because there were a lot of houses that were damaged and they wanted to prevent looters and those kinds of 
So there's one uh, policeman, military policeman, walking along the beach. And I'm looking at this guy, and behind him, about six feet, I see this other thing crawling behind him. And it was an alligator. And I'd never seen an alligator before either, because you don't have alligators in North Dakota. So here's the security policeman. He's walking along, and he's walking in the direction uh, to my right. And this alligator follows him. At the, and at the, uh, if the sky cop stopped, the alligator would stop. And then he would keep going, and the alligator would keep going. And the whole time, this alligator's mouth was, his jaws were opening and closing like he was you know, He was hungry. Yeah. And the sky, the sky cop gets to the end of his route, and he turns around the other way to go back the other way. He comes eyeball to eyeball with his alligator, and the alligator sees this guy now looking at him, and they both, the, the guy's rifle went one way, and the sky cop went a different way, and the alligator went a third way as fast as it could go. I didn't think an alligator could move that fast, and I just busted out laughing. And, and it was really an interesting way to come into the Air Force, but uh, yeah, with it was, like I said, it was the beginning of a very interesting 22 years. And see, I live, where, I mean, we have hurricanes here all the time. I'm I'm in Louisiana, southwest Louisiana, so as the crow flies, I'm probably about 15 to 20 miles from the Gulf. Last year, we had four hurricanes, two of which came knocking on my door. One of them ripped my roof off. I understand hurricanes and alligators. I have to tell you, they pop up in the darndest places, especially after a hurricane. You'll get pictures on Facebook of, you know, somebody, they'll post a a picture and say, there's an alligator on my front porch. What do I do? Well, you don't open the door for starters. (laughs) (laughs) And and you're right, they can move fast. They very, very fast. So that yeah, that's a fascinating story. So how long were you at Keesler? I was at Keesler for six weeks. That's the was the length of the executive support course that uh, I had gone through. And then at that point, I went to Del Rio, Texas, to Laughlin Air Force Base, and was assigned to the 47th Operational Maintenance Squadron as its executive support officer. So it was in that in that way, it was really. Since I had to wait for my pilot training slot, I was sitting in an office in a building that was right on the flight line. So I got to, you know, watch airplanes, watch people fly and do all those kinds of things, plus being around the maintenance guys, which was actually very beneficial to me as well. uh, Because you learn, I learned early on, you know, the importance of the enlisted troops and the maintenance guys and what they did and how hard they worked to keep those airplanes flying. And and being brand, a brand new second lieutenant, of course, I had no clue about what the real Air Force was like. And we had a senior master sergeant who was the maintenance superintendent of the squadron, and he had an office right next to mine in the same building. So I got to know him and told him, you know, what I was doing and why uh, you know I was I was going to go to pilot training eventually. I was just waiting on my slot, that kind of thing, and wanted to help out any way I could. And this guy took me under his wing. And you found I found out very early on that the Air Force is not run by the 
colonels and the generals. It's run by senior and chief master sergeants. These guys are the shakers and doers, and they could get anything done because they knew who to call. They knew how to network, and that's where I started learning about making sure that you had you know, list of the right people that you could call and get things done. And so I started developing a network with this uh, senior master sergeant. And he would take me on the flight line, introduce me to, you know, the, the mechanics who were, you know, 18. They were maybe airman first class or airman second class or uh, three-stripe sergeant or something like that. And they were out there crewing the airplanes. And I would go out there and I would take off my blouse that I had with my rank and everything on it. So I had just a T-shirt on, just like the rest of the guys out there, because it was hot in Del Rio, Texas. And I'd help them crew the airplanes just to get to know what they did and how, you know, the things that they did to pre-flight the airplane for the next flight and, and all those kinds of things. And I learned from them all about the airplane itself and how it worked, the, the different hydraulic systems, other uh, mechanical, electrical, all those different systems that, you know, a pilot should know about. I got, you know, firsthand, basically, knowledge that I acquired from these people. And that was invaluable as well. That was another lesson that I learned early on is you, know, you got to know the people that you're going to be working with and what they do. And you've got to make sure that they understand, even though that you might be, you know, in a position of responsibility and authority that's greater than theirs. If you're down there, you know, getting your hands dirty with them and asking them, well, how do you do this? How does this work? You know, they all of a sudden, you know, they get this big smile on their face and they're beaming because now they have this officer asking this little lowly airman second class about how some works. And they will do anything for you at that point to because all of a sudden now they feel like, hey, I'm important. I'm responsible. I got this officer asking me that. This is pretty cool. And so I, that was another valuable lesson that I learned that I applied later on in my uh, entrepreneurial life is how to work with people and how to make them feel important so that you can get the most out of them and keep them happy. And I'm so glad you brought up entrepreneurial because I was thinking exactly that as you were talking. I mean, this was just such a terrific introduction to becoming an entrepreneur. Excuse me, I'm very raspy today. Um, but lessons learned and lessons talked is what you're doing now. But how I'm, I'm sure, and I'm I'm just kind of guessing, Tim, because we haven't. We haven't talked about this, but I'm thinking that when, you know, you were saying, okay, I just want to fly planes. Why am I stuck in this office? Did that cross your mind? Or if it did cross your mind, did you very quickly say, I'm here for a reason. I'm here for a purpose. It was the latter. I mean, obviously, if you are a pilot candidate, you're just gnashing at the bit to get your hands on one of those airplanes. You know, it's just that's second nature. Uh, but I also realized that, you know, there are big picture issues here. 
And that's, again, another lesson that I learned about making sure that you maintain uh, the, the big picture and what's going on. And then you make the best you can with the situation presented, knowing that as things progress, you're going to get where you want to go. You might not get there uh, in a straight line, which is what everybody would like to happen. You know, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Well, not in entrepreneurship. Not at all. You know, you may get hit in the face with a two-by-four, and you've got to pick yourself back up and shake it off and take three steps back and four steps sideways and find a different path to get where you need to go, and it might take longer. And that's kind of like where I was at with pilot training because I had to wait nine months before I finally got into the pilot training class. But that nine months was invaluable to me. Even though I wasn't flying airplanes, I got to know the other 21 pilot training candidates that were going to be in my class uh, because they were all doing the same thing I was. Two of them that was in the field maintenance squadron, uh, and they were uh, assigned there doing different duties. There was uh, a guy that was working mortuary affairs of all things, a commissary officer. Uh, we had, a, had two guys that were in supply, and we got to know each other. And we would meet up because we all knew we were going to be in the same class. And we would meet at, uh, like on a Friday afternoon, uh, happy hour at the officer's club. We would meet up there and just sit around and talk and, and find out what each other's doing. And they, they had, would bring their wives in and we'd get to know. We just got to know everybody as a class at that point, which was, again, another invaluable thing that happened. Because that was my first network. And so when I needed to get something done on the admin side, I'd call my buddy over in supply, who was a, you know, a second lieutenant like me, and I'd tell him what I would need, and he would go to his uh, super sergeant, and his super sergeant would help him, and we'd get things done. And the, uh, we were basically known as the second lieutenant mafia on base <laughs> after a while because we, we, we did these things. And, you know, we kind of you know, did it off the normal path, so to speak. We bypassed the formal chain of command quite a bit, but we got stuff done. So when we went into pilot training, the class, we uh, they had this, before we went in, they they had what they call the officer's open mess, which is like a, imagine a very big formal affair in a ballroom. You know, we had our our mess dress uniforms on. Uh, it was, you know, definitely white tie and tails kind of thing. The ladies were all in beautiful evening gowns and all of that. And they had <clears throat> the base commander got up uh, and the commander of the flying training wing, who was the head guy there, uh, got up halfway through this thing and, and they, he said, now it's time to announce the junior officer of the year for Laughlin Air Force Base. And then he proceeded to, he didn't say any names, but then he proceeded to give a little bit of background about, well, this, these, uh, this person showed up uh, as a uh, officer in a non-rated capacity to wait for pilot training. And so they were kind of leading into the background. And then he started switching from he to we, all right? 
And basically, when he got to the end, is <clears throat> he said he would like to recognize uh, the second lieutenant mafia as our Aww. junior officers of the year. And all 22 of us were named the junior officer of the year at Boffin Air Force Base for, that was 1975. So that was pretty cool. So that they, is they, beyond that's cool, but that. that's what networking does. And exactly. Because, exactly. You know, kind of going back to what you were talking about, it does. And I'm guessing that there was no looking at each other going, well, I'm better than he is, and I'm going to be in this one. Y'all just kind of got down and dirty and did what needed to be done and made sure that the people around you and underneath you and in your own group got what was needed when they needed. And that really is, again, it's entrepreneurial. It really is what networking is. Networking, let me just kind of interrupt a little bit here because I think a lot of people have the idea that networking means you have to show up in a ballroom or a conference room and you have to have your little name tag on that says, my name is here and hand out business cards. That is not networking. What you have just described is perfect networking and it's a lifelong commitment to helping other people exactly and like i said and all these i didn't know at the time because you know i was you know 20 you know something and still young and stupid but i was learning a lot of life lessons and that's one thing that i want to emphasize is that when you have someone with that military background. You have a person who has learned entrepreneurial skills, whether they realize that they have done so or not, and they keep developing those entrepreneurial skills through their Air Force or Marine or Navy or Army or Coast Guard or now Space Force careers that... um, are invaluable. So when you take a look at perfect candidates, you know, to step in and become CEOs and start their own businesses and do those kinds of things, a veteran is the ideal candidate because a lot of those skills that I learned as a second lieutenant, you are taught to these guys as they're working their way up through the enlisted ranks or, again, other officers who have come up, you know, through the ranks as well. And, uh, you know, these guys all have stories like I do. Okay, they all have stories like I do because they have learned these lessons. They just need to make that connection. Okay, so about, well, gee, I learned this in the Air Force. I can take and take what I learned and start a business. And that's kind of what we want the message to be here is that someone that has that military background is an ideal candidate for getting into business. Uh, I mean, I got a gazillion stories. I'm going to jump to the end of my career real quick simply because it kind of lends into what we're doing here. Uh, When I was ready to get out when I couldn't fly anymore and uh, decided to take my medical instead of sitting behind a desk. Um, They had a transition program called Troops to Teachers. And this transition program 
was for senior and chief master sergeants and master sergeants, actually, top three, and officers who wanted to transition from what they were doing in the military to the classroom and becoming teachers or administrators or whatever was needed in, you know, in that educational community at the time. So I opted for troops to teachers simply because in my entire Air Force career, I was a teacher. I was a uh, instructor pilot. I was a standabout pilot, which meant that I was a you know, quality control type person where I would evaluate the other pilots. I was a platform instructor. Uh, I was a simulator instructor where we would take people into the flight simulator and I would set up emergency situations and other scenarios for them and you know the crews would be flying in the simulator and I'd be running the console along with a, an airman you know on the outside I mean I did all kinds of academic style duties while I was in the Air Force and so troops to teachers was a natural fit for me simply because I've been teaching for quite a bit of my career and that was an opportunity that was made available to me. Now they have something that's called Boots to Business. And Boots to Business is a transitional program that allows uh, military people to attend you know, like weekend seminars on how do you transition what you've learned in the military and get into business. You know, either, you know, as an employee or as a, you know, someone that would like to start their own business. What they do in Boots to Business is something similar to what we do in the fact that, uh, you know, we both train to produce fundable CEOs, um, but they don't go into it anywhere near in depth as we do at the Polk Institute. But that's uh, something that happens now with uh, the transitional programs for the people coming out of the military and trying to transition into civilian life. So these are and I know, I know it's ahead. difficult to make that transition. I have a lot of friends who are either active duty or have retired after many years in the military, and it's it's a whole different life. So I completely understand that. So right now, Tim, you are currently the COO of the Polk Institute, which we wanted to talk about. And I've had the pleasure of speaking with Gary Polk, who is one of the founders, and he's actually going to be – he's been on the show two or three times now because it's such an important thing that y'all do. And he's going to be rejoining us again in mid-December, I believe. So let's talk about social entrepreneurship and what it is that you're doing with fundable programs for these people who are coming out of, you know, the, the, the things that you're talking about, the experiences that you're talking about. So let's jump into that because in Veterans Day is coming up. We're in October right now. November 11th, I believe, is Veterans Day. So this is a good yes, time to be talking about this. Well, what we're doing at the Polk Institute 
is offering basically a free training program that will basically give somebody a master's level practitioner's, uh, we don't call it a license or certificate or anything like that because we don't have any type of uh, formal program as such because of 501c3 status. We are training, uh, we're nonprofit and we train, we're not in education, so to speak. So, you know, we, we have this training, but if you take a look at the people that are in the Polk Institute as founders, I'm a co-founder as well, and uh, I've got, you know, 20 years in a classroom. You know, I've got three different degrees, one master's degree and two bachelor's degrees. Gary has uh, been a college professor for close to 30 years now, I believe. He's got a background in finance and consulting, and he's been in a classroom that long teaching. Uh, our CFO, Mike Manahan, is a college professor, and he teaches finance there and uh, at, the, at Cal State Dominguez Hills in uh, Carson, California, where Gary teaches. And so we have these people you know, that have this huge knowledge of entrepreneurial theory, okay? And so what we try to do is take that entrepreneurial theory and then with people like me who have started and had three, four different businesses and had that practical experience, we take and kind of blend the two together and then we that's what we offer the uh, cohort members as they go through the program. And we have a very intensive program. It's 40 weeks. We have three different phases. Phase one alone is just is 40 weeks. And we have the, the instructors, like Gary is a college professor, but you know he teaches something called entrepreneurship for everyone. And so that gives the foundation of entrepreneurship that people coming into the program may have never heard or had before. And then after that, until we get to the end with finance, and that's Mike Manahan, uh, our other college professor, everybody else that teaches those other six classes in the middle are all people that come from the business world that are there donating their time to teach these classes to the people that are going or candidates that are going through our cohort. So we have uh, our HR class was taught by a, an HR person that uh, is a regional director now for Denny's. She's in, she's in the restaurant business and she does HR for them. Uh, our um, marketing person uh, is, you know, she has her own marketing business and is very, very successful. And she, you know, taught marketing. Uh, our, we had a lean operations person who just retired uh, from basically being an operations and management expert and consultant and would go into businesses and teach them how to basically get rid of the fat in their organization so they're, they're running 
on a very lean operational scale so that it helps increase your bottom line and you know makes them more efficient you know and it's, he was basically an efficiency expert uh, we had a personal finance instructor who uh, is a another CFO I mean we have all of these different people that can teach all these different skills now when you pack the word social in front of entrepreneurship social entrepreneurship basically means what you give back all right what you give back to your community what you give back to your state your region your country your planet and that's how uh, kind of tailor things and social entrepreneurship now is becoming uh, pretty much a recognized standalone Opportunity. Uh, there are programs available through the government where you can get a, a, a B Corp status, which means that you are a social entrepreneurship style business and you get certain considerations and tax breaks because of what you're doing on the give back end. Uh, we have what we call the three P's at the Polk Institute, which is people, profit, and then planet, and that's what we emphasize. A person, you know, obviously people are in business to make money. You know, we get that, uh, but we also want to encourage our candidates to think about: okay, what are you going to be given back to the community? How are you going to uh, help the people and the planet in your sphere of influence. Maybe you're going to, you know, as you build your business, you're going to be able to offer jobs to people that are currently unemployed. Give them an opportunity. Uh, maybe uh, you have a, a program where you do a lot of recycling and other things like that. that and so that's your give back. Uh, maybe you're an inventor and you're developing, you know, a different utilization for solar power or wind power or another maybe unknown to us at this point kind of power that's that can be developed and give us a much cleaner planet down on pollution, those kinds of things. So that's where you're going when you talk about social entrepreneurship. So when we talk to people about what they want to do and what kind of businesses that they would like to start or if they have a business and it's staggering and sputtering along and they need our help to get them to that next level we again emphasize okay what are you doing what you give back how are you going to make the world a better place by what you're doing with your business and that's extremely important to us so we think that we're pretty much cutting edge when it comes to that style of training and giving our candidates the ability to think not only along our profit, but people and planet as well. So you're basically asking them or encouraging them 
to expand their thinking from, oh my gosh, I've got to make a million widgets and sell them by Wednesday, to what is your real role in this business and in your community? Exactly. Yeah, we want to make them aware. <clears throat> and when we go through the interview process, which will be starting now in December uh, for our second cohort, which starts next February, February 2022, we'll be asking those style questions to our candidates and find out because they all have a, either a business idea that they're playing with or they've already got a business that they've started. And we'll talk to them along those lines and find out where their head's at in regards to the social aspects of entrepreneurship and, and what they understand. Right. So, so. Tim, I, I need to interrupt here. You've mentioned oh, sure. corporates a couple of times. And when you and I were speaking in the, the pre-interview, you mentioned cohorts. And I, I had to tell you, I didn't even know what the heck that was. So I went and looked it up. So anybody who's wondering what a cohort is, it's essentially a group of students working together with the same academic curriculum. Is that what, yep. what y'all are working on right now? Exactly. That's exactly okay. what it is. I, the work when we got off the phone, yeah, exactly. When we got off the phone, I went and looked it up. I was like, what is he talking I mean, you explained it to me, but I wasn't entirely sure I was grasping it. And I hate to find words I've never heard of before. So yeah. thank you well, for again, that. This all goes back to our 501c3 status with the IRS. We can't use words like education and student and teacher and all those kinds of things because we're not – quote unquote educated. We are trainers. trainers. Right. Yeah, we're trainers and our nonprofit status is dependent upon us doing training. So instead of class, we're a cohort. Instead of a student, we have candidates. Instead of instructors or professors, we have facilitators. Uh, and it all has to do with basically our 501c3 status. So you can equate it along those lines. But yes, yeah, so a cohort is just that. It's a group of people that are basically working together on the same thing. Thank you. Listen, let's talk. Now let's get down to the nuts and bolts here. Let's talk about the one-of-a-kind master practitioner training that you are offering. Is this program targeted solely at startups? So what, what do people need to know before they come to you and say, oh, I want in, I want in now? Uh, it's not specifically targeted for startups. It's, it's targeted for people who want it. Let's put it this way. It's targeted for people who want an opportunity to improve themselves, improve their lives, and be become a shaker and a doer and basically contribute to society. And we are emphasizing this opportunity for the black and brown communities and other minorities because we fully understand <clears throat> that uh, they may not have the opportunities presented to them that other people may have, but uh, so that's the initial emphasis, but we don't uh, just stop at that point. We have, in our first cohort, we have had a, quite a diverse group, 
we have a lot of women, and women are considered minority, believe it or not. Even though there's more women in the United States than there are men at this point, women are still considered a minority. Yeah, I don't understand that at all. I am a woman, and I am not a minority. I am me, and I am loud and proud. There you go. And so that's uh, so you know we we've got of all the you know we had we had 26 businesses that started with this. I I, I want to say 14 of them were women led businesses, okay? And of that, you know, we had basically a melting pot of different ethnicities and race in that. We had, you know, black and brown and uh, uh, Asian and you name it. I mean, we've had all that. We also have had, we had, uh, you know, people like me, the old uh, white male types, we had a couple of those in there that were trying to improve their businesses. We, but we had a lot of black and brown um, business candidates as well that were a part of our first cohort. So, you know, we have, that. that's what we we're looking for, you know, we, we consider ourselves kind of like a melting pot for everybody. Getting back to the old premise of give us your tired, your poor, you know, type mentality, you know, that is on that plaque on the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor and why all the people, you know, came from Europe and Asia and other countries to the United States because they wanted an opportunity. Now that they're here uh, and they've been here for generations, some of them still don't have that opportunity, and we're trying to, in our own little way, give them that opportunity, and we give it to them for free. Okay. And this next one is for veterans, yes? Yes. Uh, we, have, we had one cohort for our first go-round. This time, uh, in our second cohorts, we have basically a cohort 2A, B, and C. Cohort A, it would be the same style of uh, candidate cohort that we have now, which are people either starting a business or have a business and it's sputtering and they want to take it to the next level. Cohort B, 2B, is going to be veterans. We want veterans in that cohort because we know that veterans have the skill sets required to be fundable and heavy emphasis on the word fundable CEOs because they know how to meet deadlines. They, they're disciplined. They're determined. And they have the desire to better themselves and move ahead. They think out of the box, which is an acquired skill. Okay, people uh, who, a lot of people just don't think out of the box. They accept life the way it is, and they say, oh, no, 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 I can't do this because of, and and that's some kind of a a stumbling block that justifies the fact that uh, they can stay in their comfort zone, and they never want to leave their comfort zone. Well, veterans, you know, (laughs) they love to push the limits. Okay, and they think out of the box, and they they know that there is always a better way to build that mousetrap. 
This is something that they acquired in the military because they had to learn how to improvise. They had to learn how to think out of the box in order to complete an assigned task or mission that they needed to get done. And they had to do it by such and such a date or there would be hell to pay. And so you did it. And that's, uh, those are skill sets that are just so invaluable in the business community, which is why veterans, if they are given the opportunity either to become part of the corporate structure or, or become part of a company on an employee level, they are so much further ahead than people that they you know, pick off the street with you know, maybe high school education or they've been to a community college or even a four-year school where the kids are coming out you know, with a bachelor's degree and something. People with four to six years in the military have got that practical experience and knowledge that these other people don't. And so they're well, that just makes sense. further, you know, right. so that's that why sense. we want that veteran cohort. That's why we want them. We want these people so we can train them because we know that they're going to be successful. And that's cohort number two. And then the last cohort, we're actually doing three different, three different cohorts within one. 2C is something that Gary will tell you about when you talk with him again in December. And that is our legacy program. And what that is are uh, businesses in the black and brown community, again, that have been around for at least 20 years. That's the requirement, legacy, 20 years. They have to have been in business for at least 20 years and been passed down like uh, father to son or daughter or mother to son or daughter or grandfather to whatever. So, you know, something that's been passed down like that, at least one tier and are at a point where they should be doing a lot more in business than what they're doing. I mean, they, they should be, maybe their total sales is 500,000 for the year or 750,000 for the year when in actuality these people should be you know, drawn in 4 million, 5 million a year. And we want to take those people now and give them that knowledge and that uh, experience that the Polk Institute staff and facilitators have in order to go in, find out what their pain points are and why they're not uh, making more money, why that bottom line is still so small for them, and then help them increase their bottom line to make them more profitable, uh, make them, uh, at that point, able to expand, which does what? Allows them to hire more people, you know, bring them in, create more jobs, and uh, push that give back at the same time to the community. So that... Are, we've got basically three cohorts in one that will be starting in February of 2022. Okay, so what do people need to know? How do they find information on how to make an application? What, what do they do? Okay, we have a website that uh, is up, and people will log in to uh, www polk p o l k dash 
ISE dot org org and they will find our website at that point there are hot buttons on there that will take you to the cohort application process and we have doesn't matter if you're a veteran doesn't matter if you're a startup doesn't matter if you're a legacy you click on the cohort application button and it takes you to the application you'll fill it out and it branches into if you are a startup if you are a veteran or if you are a legacy and there are questions that will be answered on that application that are applicable only to that particular uh, cohort candidate and then once that's completed it gets sent automatically to the Polk Institute and at that point uh, they are collected by our chief of staff and handed over to our directors of recruiting. And they in turn evaluate these different applicants and then at that point figure out who we are going to interview in December. And that's basically the process. It's very easy. You just go to, once again, www.polk.com or dash, excuse me, ise.org, and you'll get to that website. You can also send an email to info, I-N-F-O, at poke-ise.org and say, hey, I'm really interested in becoming a, a one of your cohort candidates for next February. What do I need to do? And our chief of staff will take care of you. She is very, very competent and very, very good at her job. And she will definitely, you know, give those people the red carpet treatment and get them registered to uh, interview in December. So those are the oh, two ways that we can do this. Yeah. Okay. When, when people come in there, and listen, things happen. Like I said, I live in Hurricane Alley. If sure. Got it. I mean, there, I, I have been through so. In fact, the hurricane you're talking about, I wasn't around for that one, but I've been through so many of them. Katrina and, you know, Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane, um, gosh, which we had two back to back, and now I can't remember them. And I was yeah. right in the middle of both of them, but things happen. So I guess That's my true. question is, if somebody comes to you and they apply. And they are so excited. They got in, but all of a sudden, they can't show up. What happens? For what for a valid reason? Life happens. What ha what can what can be done for these people who we they want to be there? They need to be there, but they just can't at that time. Uh, we totally understand that. We get it. Okay, life happens. And. Katrina and Rita, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> in the middle of those darn things, yeah, and I just threw a complete blank. Yeah, the one I walked into, I believe, was Camille. Yeah, Camille and, was horrible. It wiped out the whole Gulf Coast over there. Yeah, seventy-four. That was uh, yeah, that was a crazy one. But um, basically, you know, we recognize that life happens, and we have had that happen to more than several of our candidates and what we do with those people see all of our class classes or workshops uh, that we have they're once a week they're all recorded 
okay? That's one of the things that our adjunct facilitators are required to do is record their particular workshop. So if someone misses, they get a hold of their adjunct facilitator and say, hey, you know, I missed, what do I need to do? And the adjunct will basically watch the video, uh, taking anything, these are my office hours, Give me a call with any questions you may have. Homework assignments are posted, and we have a, a Slack account that all these people are part of. And each of these classes have a folder in the Slack account so that right now I'm teaching uh, business plans 101 to people. And so I have a folder in the uh, cohort channel for Slack that we use for inner company communication and the students go to Slack and they'll open up the business plan one on file and in there are the recordings of the class workshops that I have taught already and there are you know the different handouts uh, books other things that are resources for them and then uh, their assignments are also posted there so they can kind of go back they can go into that folder. They can find everything. Uh, they call me. They ask me questions about things that they didn't understand during the workshop. And we get them caught up that way. So we've had... So they don't lose out. They don't just oh, say, no. I can't no. do it anymore. And then you say goodbye. That doesn't happen. No, we don't say goodbye to them. Uh, they say goodbye to us. If it's gotcha. a point where where they, you know, they say, and we've had several uh, businesses that have said, you know, we just can't do this right now. And we feel that not only are we wasting our time, we're wasting your time, simply because we can't give this the full focus that we thought we could when we started. So, and then they say goodbye. Now, uh, do we say goodbye? Yes, we do. Um, we've had to do that, and the reason why is we hold these people to a very high standard. Uh, I kind of equate it to uh, going through pilot training to become a fighter pilot. Fighter, uh, pilot training was 53 weeks long, okay, and during that time frame, you had a all kinds of academic tests. You had all kinds of little quizzes down on the flight line that they would uh, give you there. The instructor pilots would give us. And then we had uh, uh, this Friday, we called EP Flunkum, which was a deal where one of the instructors would get up in front of the class and he would present an a situation. And then he would want to know, okay, this is your emergency. What are you going to do, Lieutenant? And then he'd call on one person. And that person would have to stand up and give his answer. And if he got it right, you know, that was great. And when class would breathe a sigh of relief. And we would move on and we would get through another week of EP Flunkum. If he got it wrong, then he would go to the, the instructor, go to the next candidate that he 
wanted to pick on and see if that person knew. And, but the whole point of that is during the entire 53 weeks of all of this different type of academic and practical uh, testing and quizzing that we got, you could have only three times that you failed. Okay. Oh. Three times. And it didn't matter if it was a 100-point test, a 10-point quiz, or EP Flunkum. If you'd busted, that was, you know, that was a strike against you. I mean, it was a three-strike program. And here's the kicker. 85% was a pass on an academic test or a quiz. All right. 84% below was a bust, was a fail. And we took that standard and kind of applied it to the Polk Institute. Because when you take a look at, I mean, we could, especially if we were taking money from these people, you know, tuition, we could, you know, just sell them full of this information and bless them and say, okay, go off, good luck. And be done with it. And these people would have zero opportunity to get funded because they didn't know how. They didn't know what they were doing. And so we held, we hold these people to a very high standard. And if students or, excuse me, cohort members do not basically measure up to those standards and they demonstrate, again, three strikes, they demonstrate on three separate occasions that, hey, you know, I'm, I'm blowing you up, I'm not doing this, I'm not coming to class, whatever. Uh, go through and we give them, you know, two counseling sessions about what's going on and, and that third time happens, we say goodbye. And we've had to say goodbye to people because they're not meeting our standards. And one thing that needs to be emphasized here, Polk Institute is not just a one-phase program. You know, this academic program I'm talking about right now is 40 weeks long, okay? And that's quite a, a commitment of time, and we understand that. But it's only phase one. Phase two now is where people move into, uh, let's take our business plan that we've just written. Let's put our team together, and let's get our pitch deck done, and They've been assigned a mentor that's directly working with that business. And three to six months later, these people are now ready to go in front of potential investors and pitch and have a good chance of success of actually getting their businesses funded. So that's what we talk about when we talk about a fundable CEO. And people that are lackadaisical and, you know, kind of, you know, aren't motivated, they're not CEO material, and they're definitely not fundable CEO material. So we want, especially people that are veterans, are people that display the types of characteristics and qualities that are found in uh, fundable CEOs. And so we take them through phase two, then they get funded, and then they go into something called phase three, which is to that business as they take that startup money now and 
get their business going. So we have three different phases that we basically carry a student through. So if you kind of take a look at it on the educational side, they're getting a bachelor's degree in phase one, they're getting a master's degree in phase two, and they're getting a doctorate in phase three. So it's an amazing. That's it's amazing kind of, what y'all are doing. That's that's what it is. That's why we talk about master practitioner training. Because you're going to be a master at what you're doing by the time you're done with this. And we're exactly. also looking at a phase four now where we bring back these people into basically you know, Rotary Club style organization. And they come in and they meet once a month and uh, we will give them updates, updated training in something uh, like uh, maybe we'll spend eight hours in a workshop environment with these people. And, but it's going to be mostly seminar and, you know, trading of ideas and helping each other get past pain points in their particular businesses. And so these businesses now will have an opportunity to grow their networks because they're talking to businesses from all the other cohorts. Right. So, so that's where we're going with this. Well, the Polk Institute is, like I said, Gary has been on my show before, and he'll be here again. It's a very impressive body of work that you guys do. And we just ran out of time, Kim. Before I let you go, I I've told you, remember I told you it's the quickest 60 minutes on the Internet. It's such a great conversation. Where can people find you and where can they make application one more time for the next okay. cohort? Sure. Uh, we're at uh, www.polk, P-O-L-K, and these are all lowercase letters, P-O-L-K dash I-S-E. At dot org. org. Dot org. There we go. Dot org. Thanks right. for throwing that in there. Or they can email us at info, I-N-F-O, at polk-ise.org. Perfect. Thank you, Tim. It has been wonderful speaking with you again. And I really enjoyed chatting with you during the pre-interview. And I thank you for all of the terrific tips and the advice that you shared with our audience. And before we say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us in iTunes. We're in Prime. Literally, you cannot throw a stick on the Internet without hitting your partner in Success Radio. So just go look for us. Anywhere you consume your business podcast, we are there. Just look for your partner in Success Radio and take us along on your success journey. Kim, thank you again so much. Oh, you're most welcome, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast and have this conversation with you, and, and hopefully there's a lot of veterans out there that are listening you know, that will take this opportunity. Uh, you know, we're not geographically bound. I mean, we've got students from... Georgia, from New York, from Boston, from Michigan, uh, that are in this first cohort. So don't think that, oh, well, they're in California. You have to be living in California. No, 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 no. You can be anywhere. So don't be afraid. Get Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. 